Hi everyone and welcome to Unorthodoxy. My name is Duncan and this is another Q&A episode in which I answer a question that I've gotten. We're going to dive right in. The question is from Eugene and it is prefaced by a story which I'm going to read out. So here goes. I was hanging out with my friend and his little brother. They are from a conservative Orthodox Christian family, but both lost their faith at some point in life. For the younger sibling, it happened like a month before this conversation. He used to be an altar server, very involved in his local parish, woke up at like 4.30 to be there way before the morning service. So we were talking about the Orthodox Church and the church politics and the liberal conservative divide, corruption, stuff like this. But none of it was why he left the church. He obviously still subscribed to some sort of theology. He had a lot of love for the people he met there. But when I asked him why it happened, he had this to say. I don't believe in universal truths. Then I realized how big of a disconnect there was between us. Obviously, the kid just turned 18, got his first taste of real independence, is finally able to explore his liberal leanings. And I would be lying if I said I didn't go through a similar individualistic phase. I am socially and politically liberal, but fairly conservative in terms of religion. And that made me realize just how conservative I have become. So here's the issue. I see the kingdom of God as the tyranny of meaning, and I do happen to believe in universal truths. For me, a personal God is by definition an idol, but a lot of modern theory is built on the denial of this intrinsic meaning, it places larger emphasis on our role as its creators. Besides, these days, there's an entire marketplace of meaning, religious and secular. I sometimes find these things hard to reconcile. So here's the question. Is it possible to reconcile the idea of a universal truth with something like a personal truth, without arriving at a totalitarian regime of truth that subsumes the personal into some tyrannical regime of meaning. So there you have it. There is an awful lot going on here and I'm going to see what I can get through. Um, As much as possible, I'm going to try and structure my answer, but in the end it may come across as being a bit of a ramble, which may be uh, exactly what is needed here, given that we're not going to be able to cover everything. You may be interested to know that this very nicely preempts the series that I'm going to get stuck into after this very Q&A episode. I'm calling the series Reworlding. I'm going to take time to really explore quite a few of the issues that um, have been raised by Eugene here. In particular, in that series, I want to unpack what is going on when faith and understanding go through transitions. What happens, for instance, when someone like Eugene's friend's brother opts against his Orthodox Christian faith for something so very radically different from what he used to believe. But still, let me give you something of a heads up on how I'm going to tackle Eugene's question. First, before I get directly to the question, I want to tackle that comment by Eugene's friend's brother on how he abandoned faith because he doesn't believe in universal truths. This then will set up the second thing, uh, and a very crucial point, which is that universals are, in actual fact, in terms of our lived experience, unavoidable. We thrive on them as conceptual containers and as ways to 
direct our lives. Then third, I'll get to a more concrete answer to Eugene's question, which involves arguing more or less that what is tyrannical is not universals like the kingdom of God, but the rigid way that people adopt them, as well as the smallness with which we might conceive of them. And then fourth, having answered the question somewhat, probably not completely, I want to just very briefly touch on the whole marketplace of of meaning thing, or marketplace of ideas thing. I hope that sounds good. So first off, how about that comment by Eugene's friend's brother on how he abandoned faith because he doesn't believe in universal truths? You may feel that I'm about to make much more of this than is really necessary, and maybe that is true, but I hope that you'll see what I'm on about soon enough. Of course, there is a potential logical contradiction even in the statement that there are no universal truths. It amounts, if only on the surface, to a universal rejection of universals, or the implicit assumption that it is actually possible to assert a universal negative over and against more positive universals. I do appreciate that the claim made by this guy is prefaced by the issue of belief. He doesn't believe in universal truths. This is a faith claim rather than a matter of some well-formulated epistemology. It is felt or intuited rather than carefully conceptualized or rationalized. At least that's what it seems to me from from what Eugene has explained. And it happens to be a feeling that were it to be more carefully conceptualized would likely manifest in a kind of radical Nietzschean nominalism where to be genuinely truthful about the world would require a truly radical embracing of difference and equivocation above any possibility of unity. My goodness, that's a mouthful. It would require, in other words, that we give every leaf on every tree and every grain of sand, and in fact every atom and electron and so on, a brand new name to distinguish just how very different everything is from everything else. To say there are no universal truths is to claim that the universals embedded in language are constructs and nothing more. In fact, this is the best hope that the guy has of escaping logical contradiction, although even so I'm not so sure he managed to do so completely. He would have to say that while there are universals in our heads, there are no real universals, but even this claim to me is a kind of philosophical nightmare. I've actually spoken a bit about this kind of nominalism and why I don't think it works in my series on a murdered god and an exiled queen, and there's a much bigger story to that series. But here I just want to highlight how I don't think that the nominalist can actually live out his belief that there are no universals. Nominalism makes for a fairly brazen kind of hypocrisy, in fact, since it assumes that we can recognize difference without similarity, even though this is, in actual fact, impossible. And also, It assumes that our mental categories are in fact divorced from being, which clearly they are not. We require, even just in terms of our conceptual machinery, something familiar to even be able to conceive of that which is not familiar. Radical alterity or otherness, otherness apart from familiarity or some kind of universal, even a very limited one, 
would quite literally be overlooked. We wouldn't know what we are supposed to apprehend or recognize because we would have nothing in our conceptual frameworks to be able to recognize it. I hope that makes some sense to you, what I've just said. We would fail to be able to take any account of it, logically speaking. The trouble phenomenalism is that we have to first perceive unity in things before we can make mental distinctions. A huge amount of agreement needs to be present first before we can arrive at even the slightest modicum of disagreement. Another way of saying this is as follows. Our actual phenomenological experience of the world is of a unity that governs difference. Our names for things don't designate mere conceptual structures, but indicate how we actually engage with and experience the world. And only the anti-phenomenology of some forms of psychoanalytic thought would generate the idea that experience itself is entirely untrustworthy. So, to put it rather more harshly than I want to in my assessment of Eugene's friend's brother, who I have never met, um, to disbelieve in universals in the way that he does in this very universal manner can only ever be the result of a knee-jerk reaction rather than being something that can be sustained when placed under even the softest form of rational scrutiny. Part of the trouble, though, is that rational scrutiny itself is made impossible by radical nominalism. After all, our mental categories are, in the radical nominalist's mind, not actual truths. They are merely names. No universal truths means that there are no rules and only exceptions. And this in itself makes no logical sense. It means, again, self-contradiction. No rules except the rule that there are no rules, which can only be made on the grounds of perceiving difference on the grounds of a larger unity. <laughs> okay, so that that is way too much of a ramble. And it is very likely that I have explained myself very poorly, but I hope some of it made some sense to you. Ultimately, my point is this, no one actually lives as if nominalism is true. We can act in the world because we have some sense of actual universals. We can view the world as being imbued with meaning, not because we are imposing meaning, but because we are finding it. Even scientists have to have some universals in play in order to find meaning, which is something explored rather brilliantly in the philosophy of Mary Midgley, but also implied by philosophers of science um, who follow Thomas Kuhn, uh, the structure of scientific revolutions guy. Again, as I've suggested, even the capacity to recognize difference is rooted in a much deeper, although not often noticed, capacity to recognize similarity and unity. I see that a chair and a table are different, for example, because they are both beings that have, to put it rather clumsily, thingness. I recognize different types of furniture because they are all types of furniture. I can differentiate between all things because they are still all things and are all therefore equally components of a marriage between being and consciousness that makes apprehension possible. I know that I've gone on too long on this, but this is all for the sake of making the point, the second point in this answer to Eugene's question, that the claim there are no universal truths must indicate that there is more going on than the person making this claim may even be aware of. 
universals, universal truths are after all unavoidable. And yes, this does mean that we're going to have to take some time to figure out how to live with universals if this is the case. All of this and more is helpful for paving the way to answering the actual question. So let me get to that now. So just in case you're tracking, we're at point three of my four part answer to the question. What is most evident to me is the formulation of universal truth or universal truths as being somehow in competition with something like my or your most private experiences of truth. Eugene's conversation partner taking a stand against a universal was, after all, articulated as a matter of personal belief over and against an institutional assertion of universal truth. Let me just say on this that certainly, if the kingdom of God were to end up being something like a universal negation of the private or personal experience of truth rather than a context for it, or a healing of the brokenness within it, there would certainly be a threat that the kingdom of God could become something akin to a kind of tyranny of meaning, a totalitarian regime of meaning or some other kind of hegemonic ideology. Even my claiming this requires obviously a lot more nuance than I'm able to give right now. What I'm not saying is that when we privately believe something, the universal truth must automatically agree with us. People are, after all, quite adept at believing in utter lies and living them out. What we need in a universal, in universals, is something truer than what we believe to arrive at some semblance of actual meaning, some semblance of, of being put together rather than pulled apart. So no matter how we understand the universal, it would be that which would also account for our capacity to refuse the universal. And yet, there is the fear that the universal might step in and squash us or oppose us. Tyrannical regimes exist on the right and the left of the political spectrum, past and present. And we are not necessarily in the wrong to be worried about such things. There may be very good reason to hold some form of postmodern skepticism towards meta-narratives that produce tyranny. And yet, I would also hasten to point out that the issue noted especially in postmodern discourse has been the problem of modernist meta-narratives, as well as the postmodern meta-narrative that claims that there can be no meta-narrative other than the one that claims that there can be no meta-narrative. In other words, the trouble has been nominalist conceptions of truth that have been imposed on reality as if they are true in the capital T sense of the word. So to use Eugene's language, the problem is idolatry, not universals. We have every right to be skeptical of nominalist meta-narratives because there are ways to take smaller truths as if they are universal or should be universal. And it's here that I will drop a bit of a bombshell. It is not universals that are the real source of tyranny, but the rejection of universals. If truth is not there in actuality to be discovered, nominalism forces us into a position in which language is not a tool for discerning truth, but is rather an instrument of power according to which regimes of meaning are imposed. 
Remember that the first nominalists were the sophists, for whom language was a tool by which we manipulate the world and manipulate others, rather than being a window through which we can look at the world. If you really look at philosophical systems that have produced tyranny, if you read dictator literature like Hitler's or Stalin's or Lenin's or Mao's appallingly stupid and immoral writing, for example, you will notice a fierce, albeit sometimes unconscious, commitment to nominalism. And I think that religious traditions have gone wrong too when they have bought into the secularization thesis that was made possible by nominalism. Fundamentalism, as I've argued elsewhere on this podcast, is a modern problem directly related to the rejection of universals. So to put all of this into a very small nutshell, universals would be those that are big enough to encompass individual perspectives. They would be big enough to to encompass and accommodate our unique interpretive postures towards the world. So bigger universals will in fact not negate private experience, but provide context. It is only when smaller so-called universals, nominals, maybe we could call them that, are assumed to be universals, that's when the tyranny really begins, because that is in essence a claim that language can contain meaning, can can control meaning rather than point to it, which is I think closer to the um, the more realist position that makes use of universals. Now with all of this in mind, uh, which is, is way too much, I really should have not tried to squeeze all of this into such a small space, I just want to briefly talk about uh, the fourth part of my answer. Eugene talks about the marketplace of ideas, and this idea is so interesting because it suggests that we can march into any store and pick and choose the ideas that we like the most, as if, in a way, we're shopping for clothes to wear or a car to drive around in. I know this is a, a metaphor, and that means, in a sense, it is right. It points out something that is true, the, the tendency for us to 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 some extent, pick and choose the path that makes the most sense out of various options. But the idea of a marketplace of ideas or a marketplace of meaning or worldviews also tends to embrace a kind of competitive model of of how we negotiate our our meaning-making systems. If I choose one worldview, am I not inherently choosing against all the others? There's a kind of zero-sum game thinking that comes into play here. And then there's the problem of suggesting that any old worldview will do. And that clearly isn't exactly something we can claim with any confidence. Maybe we need different metaphors to look at these problems, and I'm going to suggest a metaphor from optometry to complement the metaphor of a marketplace of ideas. There will, of course, be other ways to look at this, but I find this metaphor fairly helpful. The question of optometry is going to be to find the glasses, the lenses that allow us to see what we're looking at in as clear a way as possible. This involves an actual investigation into what glasses will work or what contact lenses will work. And the choice of which glasses will work is not just up to you, it's up to the entire world of optometry and the science of helping people to see better. This is an idea that would make more sense in reflecting on the work of Hans-Georg Gadamer, who is going to feature quite a lot in the series that follows this episode. But the gist of the idea is this. 
We don't just choose our worldviews on the basis of a preference, but must live ourselves into our worldviews on the basis of the entire context within which we are placed. The issue, again, is one of participating in meaning rather than of merely believing in certain abstract propositions. Using the metaphor of optometry again, what is obvious is that some lenses are going to work better than others. Some lenses may in fact work worse than others and maybe they will even stop you from seeing altogether. And yes, what is certainly beneficial is when I can see clearly and you can see clearly, at least as clearly as we possibly can. When all of us are perceiving the world as clearly as we possibly can, everyone benefits. This is not a win-lose situation. It's more like a win-win situation. And I, I think it is worth thinking about this because whichever lenses we happen to end up choosing or picking, or maybe often it's going to be a case of feeling like uh, the lens was chosen for us, we need to recognize the absolute vitality of universals. We are all trying to seek to understand the same truth. My sense is, and perhaps this is going to be construed as, as being too idealistic for some of you, but my sense is that the more we can agree on universals, the greater will be our ability to talk about and negotiate the details. But I can also see in which way someone might disagree with pretty much everything that I have gone on about here. In which case, I certainly hope that I've given you some decent food for thought. As I said, this preempts a great deal of what I will be discussing in my forthcoming series on reworlding. So if you want to grapple with some more of this stuff in a hopefully more organized way, I hope you will join me for that. Thank you very much for the questions, everyone who sent me questions. Until next time, cheers. <laughs>